Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Do sex addicts trust themselves? I put this one in answer. Do sex addicts trust themselves? Do they trust others? Speaking prior to treatment recovery. Can you please speak a bit on that? Thank you. What do you think that means to exactly, Tammy? So, so I, I, I saw the question and I was like, um, I think I too much trusted myself before recovery, you know, cause I no seriously, I was, you know, I can do this control, you know, I mean, you know, I shared with somebody earlier today, our best thinking got us into recovery. So, you know, so we have this delusion that, you know, we are in control. And if we, if we just figure out the right way to put the puzzle pieces together, then it's all going to work and we're going to, it's going to be fine. And, you know, so, so I think we have an unwarranted trust in ourselves before recovery. I remember being fearful and not trusting myself. I was so worried. I was on a, on, I was in treatment in a different state and I was so afraid that the flight attendant was going to offer me a drink and I was going to take it even though I didn't want it. Like, so, so there was a huge level of mistrust of my own self, which fortunately turned me towards other people who could become my trust. You mentioned blanket a minute ago, they became my trust blanket. So, so that for me felt like the journey. So your thoughts? Great answer, Tammy. Um, well, I just want to add to the part where this person said, speaking of prior to treatment or prior to recovery, and I have to tell you, and I'll just put in our little plug, we run a treatment center called Seeking Integrity out here in California. In fact, I think the guys who are there uh, are probably watching. They are. And one of the things that we go through, I think, in the first week of treatment uh, is a lot of confronting. What are we confronting? Denial. What is denial? False beliefs that allowed me to keep doing what I was doing because I told myself that was okay. And so I, one of the first things that we have to do in treatment over the first couple of days, if not the whole time, is challenge that thinking. You thought this was okay. You thought this was a good idea, but what about your kids? What about your spouse? What about your job? Because when I'm an addict, I'm only focused on the fun. I'm not really looking at how it's going to affect everything. So no, I, I don't believe any addict who's not in recovery or treatment, I don't care what they say. Uh, if they tell me I've been through with five sex workers, I'm going to pretty much assume they've been with 10. You know, uh, if they've said they've never been there, I'm going to say, well, they probably only went once. You know, I, I just, why would you believe someone who is fighting really hard to make sure they don't get in trouble? You know, that doesn't make any sense. So no, I don't believe anything they have to say. And uh, unless probably in the beginning, someone else says it, like I'm sitting in a therapist's office and that person, you know, that we work it out in a professional way. So anyway, no, I would not trust myself or anything an early addict says, but especially myself. So the next one, I got to move it, is um, my, ad, my addicted and I separate, oh wait, and I separated husband, no, my addicted and right, when you're Tammy. separated, it's a little confusing. Separated husband keeps mentioning God and everything he says in front of our adult children. He acts as though he were a good person. Um, is he, uh, is this a characteristic of sex addiction? We have limited contact, only the necessary, but how should I react to this? It's kind of embarrassing because all the family knows why we are separated. Well, um, I think people do lots of things to try to look good. And that doesn't mean they don't have a belief or they're, you know, 
or they're not, it's not something important to them. But I think if it's something that I thought people would approve of or, or feel good about as an addict, I'd say it a lot. You know, I've been going to tons of meetings, 12 a week. Like I really feel, of course I went last week once, but left early, you know, we're going to say the things that we know are going to manipulate or seduce or make you feel good about us. And if regardless of what that person's doing in their real life, I would imagine they're bringing this up for their own purpose to leave a certain impression. Um, because what would be interesting is say, what do you mean by God? What are you doing with God? You know, are going to church? You know, like you can really start asking questions and see what they come up with. If it's nothing like you've heard for the last year, they're probably just using it as a way to look good. Yeah, and, well, and and what they don't understand is that always falls hollow. Like you, you know, you're like, oh, everybody knows. So it's like touting that whole thing. I, I've said this earlier to someone else today. Um, what the actions are is what you know what is so lip service to god um is hollow so it's what are his actions and i don't hear anything really changing in just what you shared um but as far as you being embarrassed i, I want to remind you the shame is his not yours so the more you lean into we've got drop-in groups for betrayed partners etc so the more you lean into support the, the more i think you'll be able to internalize you know it, it's and shame is useless, but you know the the, the problem is his, you know, um, and uh, and being embarrassed and being embarrassed for him acting like a fool that's one thing, but um, you taking on that as part of you, you know, it isn't so. Well, yeah, he's humiliating himself. He's pretending he's something. Is you know, addicts, we do lie to ourselves, and I will say to myself, oh, they're really going to look at me this way if I just act this way, and I believe it. So someone else might say, oh my God, they're humiliating themselves. We don't think that way. We think we're you know, playing the, playing the instrument the way we're supposed to and that you're going to buy in. So what I love about this whole thing is this person doesn't believe any of it. Just from the, well, even asking these questions is saying, I don't believe what he's saying when he comes in and he doesn't seem sincere to me and I'd go with that. Next question. I'm the partner of a sex addict and would like to know how an addict can cheat and lie for many years and feel no uh, and feel no guilt about the cheating, lying, spending money, turning off phone and leaving me worrying, etc. He states no guilt or shame until after being caught. No shame spirals into being caught. OK, um, this is a kind of a I'll try to make this as quick as I possibly can. Um, addiction is a disease, a disorder. And one of the things about addiction that defines it is being very self-focused. You could say narcissistic. So when I am, let's say, using heroin, um, that's all that matters to me. I mean, I like my family. I like my kids. I want to keep working to have some money to pay for the heroin. I might want some of that money we have in the bank and to pay for the heroin. But I'm not focused on my kids, my family, my job. They're just sort of out there somewhere. My focus is getting drugs. And I say this all the time, you know, as a drug addict who's looking for heroin, I might spend my kid's college fund, all of it, getting drugs. But sober, with real work on myself and reconsidering how I've lived my life and rearranging my priorities, like family's important, friends, you know, I might go back, I've seen heroin addicts go back and work three jobs to pay that money back because they're not inherently unethical or amoral people. It's just that the disease of addiction took over to the degree that they couldn't see anything but that. Part of treatment, by the way, again, whether it's our place or elsewhere, is making people aware of what they really value and what's really important because they're so laser focused on what they've been doing that's caused all these problems that once they let go of that, they're not sure how to 
feel good about themselves or get rewarded. One more thing, there is a neurobiological chemical piece of this. Um, if you think about it this way, it's the easiest way I can say it. If we experience a traumatic event, we go into panic. And what does panic mean? It means our heart is pounding. For example, we have earthquakes here in California. If the earth started shaking, my heart would stop, start pounding, my pupils would dilate, I, all my hands would get cold, my, my, I would have a physical change in what was going on to me because my body is, is finding a way for me to protect myself at best, as best it can. And one of the things that happens when you're in crisis and you're losing, you're um, releasing a lot of adrenaline is that you can only focus on that. I'm only focused on the earthquake or getting my kids safe, or I can't think about anything else. I'm just thinking about what's in front of me because that's the nature of being a crisis. If I was still thinking about reading a book while I was dealing with a crisis, I'd probably die. So the problem is, is that the release of strong adrenaline is part of addiction. So when, uh, and that's the intensity part. The reason I don't feel scared like in an earthquake is because there are other chemicals being released in my brain that make me feel good. So in a way, moving toward my addiction is like a fear, fun, fear, fun experience. The fear comes from the adrenaline. And when we have a strong release of adrenaline in our brain, basically we, are, we, are we have tunnel vision. That's how we're built is to only see the thing in front of us. And so when you're a desperate addict trying to get to what you want to, you're not thinking about your spouse, your friends. You're, you're not able to think about any of those people. And then if you're a really good liar, you put it in a corner and you hide it and you never tell anybody until you get caught. And by the way, your spouse does not feel badly about their behavior. They feel badly about getting caught. Most, uh, and I'll just say this, you know, I, if I've worked with a thousand clients, thousand sex addicts over the years, 995 of them, maybe 996 came into treatment because they were in trouble. They were worried about losing their spouse, losing their marriage, losing their, their money, whatever it was. Um, and I, I know this because I'll say to everyone who comes into treatment, oh, really welcome. Why are you here? And they say, well, I'm going to be a better dad. I really hurt my spouse. I, I don't want to be this kind of person. And I'll say, but then why didn't you come in six months ago or a year ago? You were still doing the same thing. Oh, well, my wife just found out. Oh, so that's why you're here. You're here because you got in trouble. I will say, and I, I'll, I'll give myself a little credit here, Tammy. I would say, well, I am one of, and I don't know about you, but I'm one of the few people I've ever met who said, I can't live this way anymore. I, I want things I want things in my life more than I want the life that I'm living. And I'm willing to give everything up to do that. But I was 25. So it was a lot of years. And I'd screwed up my life so badly by 25. And I knew that I could do better. I knew that I could have better. So I had to make a different kind of commitment. Um, and I completely changed my life as a result and what I value and what I, but I think intact my love of people, my desire to give things away and support them, my deep, deep, spiritual connection I have when someone writes me and says, you've helped me and I've never meet them or I'll never meet their kids. I mean, I have a tremendous, anyway, all those things were there before. It's just, they were all masked by my, by the insanity. One more thing though, there are people who are just sociopaths and they do act in certain ways and they don't feel badly about it at all. And that's the only treatment method I have. If someone comes to treatment and it's purely manipulation and they're really not that interested in getting help for themselves, I can't really help them. You know, it ha there has to be something inside that says, I want to be different. I don't want to live that way anymore that drives treatment. So, Tammy. So the next question is, I know this is very personal choice, but do you have any advice about reconnecting sexually in a relationship after disclosure? How long is fair for me, the betrayed partner, to say I don't feel comfortable being sexual with my SA partner? And at what point and how can I bring myself to be comfortable with it again? So there's a two questions in there. When and mm -hmm. how? Like mm -hmm. when and how, is that right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Okay. So Tammy knows a couple of house. Um, there's a, or, uh, there's a, um, some colleagues of mine called Bill and Ginger Burkaw, B-E-R-C-A-W. And they wrote, I don't remember the name of the guide. The sexual guides. reintegration, but I'm going to caution you. They wrote this before codependency. There is codependent language in there. So mm. if you, if you take, if you can take what you need and leave the rest, there's really good content in there. Just, I would encourage you to take what you need and, and avoid the codependent language. They wrote that years before codependence came out. So that's my caution on that. Go ahead. Well, I also think that, so there are paths, technical paths, like, uh, you know, we can go to sex therapy. It's not on you. You know, I described earlier how addicts are often very reticent to be sexual with our partners. It's actually scary. It's easy for me, to have, and this is true. It's easy for me, me to go hire a sex worker tomorrow and have sex with them and have my mind blown than allow myself to be intimate and vulnerable with you, which will ultimately, ultimately result in a much more meaningful experience. So part of this, by the way, depends on how long has this person stopped acting out? And if it's been three months, I would want to be sexual with that person. If it's in six months, I might not want to be sexual with that person. It could be up to a year, sometimes longer, before I really feel safe having sex with that person. And by the way, I say this every time, I'll say this to you. God, I must say the same stuff all the time, Tammy. Don't have sex with anyone you don't trust. Would you walk up to a stranger and say, I don't know you very well, but I'd like to have sex with you? Well, we would, but partners probably wouldn't. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, if you don't trust and believe in your partner, either because it's been really soon or because you're not seeing the kind of actions that would produce trust and comfort for you, you're not sexual and you don't need to be sexual and you don't ever have to feel badly about it. You know, this is your body, your safety. Um, I think these are things that two of you can talk about. In part, you have to say, this is what makes me still feel uncomfortable. This is what we haven't worked through. This is why I don't want to get close to you. There are also degrees of closeness. Like I said, it may be okay to hold hands. It may be okay to do a massage or, or, you know, or rub someone's back. It's not okay to take all our clothes off and have sex. So for some partners, you know, and this is to all of us, right? Sex is not genital necessarily sex can be intimacy physically can mean letting someone in not necessarily into you but you know they could be rubbing your chest they could be there are many many ways for couples to be intimate and i think that kind of behavior without there being any we've got to have sex or we're going to have sex or that's the end point of sex is a lot easier you learn how to hold hands again you learn how to look into each other's eyes again you learn to you know trust comes in those moments before penetrative sex you know so there's a whole kind of what would you call it tammy continuum or or, or step yeah, ladder of all that yeah. well and okay. and dr david talks often about sensate focused um from uh, masters right. and johnson which is you know, like you were talking about is you know, rubbing feet rubbing back whatever it so so the spectrum the this you know like we're going to start with what we are comfortable with and it will be uncomfortable because you know it's like awkward dating it's like you know the first it, it's just it's it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but owning this a little uncomfortable. That's what communication is, is and intimacy. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So can you switch to open again now on the yes, questions? I'm okay. Open. So I'm all, all open. right. So I've been attending 12 step meetings for about four months. Now the CSET that my girlfriend and I see says that I should have a sponsor around six month mark, which instantly gave me anxiety because I don't feel I'm even close to reaching that point due to my struggle to connect with people. My question is, what would be an appropriate time frame to obtain a sponsor and any tips on what to look for in a sponsor? Well, two things about that. You know, we're talking about fear of intimacy. And that's what I'm experiencing here. 
I think a relationship with a spouse, I know that a relationship with someone like a spouse, a role model, I mean, a sponsor, who is a role model for me in recovery is going to be very intimate. I'm going to tell them all kinds of things about me that I, I, I'm ashamed of and I wish I hadn't done. And, you know, I am trusting them to let me be intimate with them about everything. And they're going to support me and direct me. And this is, by the way, one of the gifts of 12-step programs is nobody can really judge anyone else. You know, somebody went driving down the highway and drove into a tree drunk while I passed out at a party and fell in the pool. I mean, it's all the same. You can't compare pain. You can't compare shame and embarrassment. We all share it. Um, but, um, but, and... I think you need a sponsor in the first week. I think, and you don't have to have a permanent sponsor. You can say, you know what? Could we work together for a few weeks and see how it goes? Some sponsors are very easygoing and supportive and lead you to the next step. Some sponsors like me were very demanding and very focused. And if you don't do this, I'm not sure I can help you. There's a whole variety of people, but you know what's the most important thing in this question is you have to ask, even ask, even whoever asked this question, what I already know about you is you're afraid of being rejected or you're perfectionistic and you want to find just the right person. It doesn't matter. Ask someone who listened to what they have to say, oh, they're kind of living a life I want and go ask them, would you work with me for a while? I'm looking for a sponsor. Maybe it'll feel right and you'll move forward, but you never know if you try. And you're like the guy who's sitting in the corner room while everyone's dancing and they're having a great time. And you're just sitting along the wall saying, gee, I don't want to ask anybody to dance. You're missing out on the fun. And in this case, on the healing. And in most 12-step meetings, there is an opportunity. I mean, like it can be part of the opening in the meeting is, you know, are there people that are willing to sponsor? I know a lot of people, I've been in a few 12-step meetings where they'll say, I need a sponsor if anybody's willing. You know, there's phone lists typically in meetings or and a lot of things are online, but th there are opportunities within those meetings. And like Dr. Rob said, it isn't a permanent, some people find their lifelong sponsor for the rest of their life. That was not me. And I often say for a season. So like this person can help you initially and then you're going to grow some confidence. You're going to make a little more progress and then you're, you can find somebody else. And that's all good. And it isn't that you're rejecting the other one. You can just go, thank you for all, all you've done with me. Now I, you know, I need something else. All fine. Um, but I, first thing I read this was like six month mark. I'd be like, yeah, heck no. And rather than having anxiety about it, just commit that, you know, what's the worst, I always do this, what's the worst can happen? Somebody can say, no, you will survive that. It, 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 it's going to be okay. Because you can ask somebody else. You know, one you of my favorite ends. No, I just really appreciate what you're saying, Tammy. And it, you know, it makes me think of how often do you go to a trusted meeting and raise your hand? Do you go to trusted meetings and just sit and listen to whatever it has to say and then go home? Or are you willing to take the risk of saying, hey, this is what went on with me today or whatever it is? Because if you are able to do that, you can raise your hand and say, you know, it's really hard for me, but I'm looking for a sponsor. I don't know how to approach people, but I'm a single man who or I'm a married man. And if you can help me and maybe people approach you, maybe it's too hard to go up to one person, but you can put it out there online in groups. Tammy will tell you we run free groups multiple times a week for addicts and spouses on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. You may go there and say, hey, are any of you in 12-step or I've been listening to you in a group, but anyone, you know, tell me more about that. There are lots of places to go to learn about it with actually diving into it. Hey, Tammy, I wanted to do a little promotion, if you don't mind, because we don't often do this, but there's some things I'm really, really proud of. And I want you guys to know that when I talk about the work that I do or have done, um, I don't do it to brag. I, I have a lot of resources to feel good about myself. I do it to help you understand how 
much of an impact the work I'm doing is having in other people's lives so that you can understand that what we're doing um, has um, authority, if you will. So we have a podcast. I have a podcast called Sex, Love, and Addiction. Sex, Love, and Addiction. We just crossed the 850,000 download mark. So nearly a million people have downloaded that podcast and a lot of sex and love addicts and their partners get answers to, well, like Tammy said, what about a maternal enmeshment or how do we learn to be intimate again? Or I think my husband's gay or, you know, all of those questions. I've got people from all over the planet who are therapists on sex, love and addiction discussing that. And it's free. I have a blog, we don't talk about this much, Tammy, called Sex and Love in the Digital Age. It is on Psychology Today. It is also free. I have 1.8 million people have downloaded my blog. There might be one in there for you, considering the issues we're talking about. Um, I'm all over YouTube if you want to see me give a lecture or help you have information of that kind. Um, and then there's all the groups we run. I mean, there's so many opportunities for you to reach out to me or learn about the work we do or find your way into support. And uh, we do this free for many reasons. Number one, people did it for us when we needed help. Number two, this level of expertise is hard to find without paying for it. And even if you find it and pay for it, people may be in another state or another country. And third of all, sometimes people come to our treatment center. And if one of you two or you come to Seeking Integrity, that pays for us to give everything away for free. So I promote everything that's free, and I encourage you to take a look at what we have to do. By the way, Tammy, you should mention the podcast we have together, since that reflects what we're doing here. Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction is on, and it's on Spotify. It's on all of it, but you can always find the podcast and everything else on sexandrelationshiphealing.com, including previously recorded webinars. So there is, there is so much information that you absolutely cannot capture it all because free, we, we free, just keep, free. yeah free 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 yeah like that commercial free 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 yeah so um and you undersold the the psychology today it, he, he's in the top couple percent of or not even percent he's in the top like five psychology today five. bloggers and i think it was closer to 10 million you've had uh, readers but I didn't look no, at the stats, so no, it's a lot. It's a lot. I don't. I don't yeah. know. Um, I, yeah. But I. I'm telling I you, know it's a lot. This. There's one more thing that we want to mention. Oh, maybe. Oh well, I'll just say you know you want to work on this work. You want to figure out how to do it. We also have paid stuff. You know you can go on the site and take the first six stages of recovery called a, you know, a, what is it? What do you use that called, Tammy? That six stages? The sex, well, it's sex and porn addiction 101 workbook. We have level one, Part level one. two, level three. Yeah. So we've right. got a couple's workshop. We've got, I mean, we've got all kinds. That's on seeking integrity. You know, there's support sessions. Dr. Rob does an expert consultation. And I want to go back to what you said about the treatment center. Yes, it's paid, but, but Dr. Rob shared an email earlier with me today about right. a, a person who, who was an alum from a year ago and this person like I you know I wept it's like it was so beautiful the transformation because this person took what was said seriously now I'm going to share we I had a, a message from a, a spouse of somebody who came uh, you know a longer time ago and and this person hasn't done anything that they that was shared with them they, they I take that back they'll go to meetings but this person is in relapse and they're going to lose everything because they refuse to change and that is sad so I loved the you know that this one person took it to heart and really you know, and changed and then I hate that addiction steals from everyone when when people don't you know, take the baby steps to change. So, so the guy that is asking for a sponsor, our drop-in groups, there's peer support. You be brave, 
just ask. You can do this. You want the good stuff. So, so. Oh, and by okay. the way, um, asking here is a great start. It's yes, great start. yes. I, I can't give you specific sponsors, but we can point you in the right direction. So, so we have time for one more. Let's take so, another question. Sure. Yes. If so Rob's rule for relationships, does this apply when you are trying to get out of the doghouse? I think in early recovery, when I'm working with us, when I'm involved with my partner who's so angry and so hurt. So the answer is no, to be honest with you. Um, I was on the phone, Tammy knows this. I do do consultations and I only do them once. And I do them with one person. I never go back. And my job is to figure out what they need to do and how to get better and all this stuff. And I talked to both members of a couple and really in about two hours, my goal is to help them understand what they do next. You know, after 25 years, I listen, I listen, and I ask a lot of questions. And then I try to say, well, basically on my experience, here's some things you should do. And I ask the spouse a lot of questions. And then I turn to often the husband, but not always, sometimes the wife. And I say, well, you know, how are you feeling about all this? Or what are you, you know, as you're hearing this, because I usually talk to the spouse for a while and the person who's been doing acting out, who doing the acting out, acting out has to listen. And the first thing that almost every uh, person who's been listening says, well, you don't understand why I did this. My wife did this and my wife did that. And my husband did this. And I just tell them to stop. Like I actually put up the hand and if they don't stop, I get louder and I say, stop. Because every addict thinks they have every reason in the world for doing what they do. And most of it is their partner's fault, or at least they want to hear what part of it. It is not our job in the beginning to look for our partner's part. You know, your partner may be 300 pounds and not have any sex with you and be mean to you every day and wishes they had children with someone else. And you can leave that person. You can divorce that person. You can start playing golf. You can start volunteering your time. You can spend more time with your kids. There are a lot of things that someone can do. Go into counseling. There's a lot of things that someone can do. And when they're unhappy with their partner or in a marriage, then go have sex with other people or have affairs or look at porn. That's our decision. So that decision to leave the relationship and go over here to disappear from our relationship to make ourselves feel better, our partners don't have any responsibility in that. And I want every partner who's here to just understand, this is why I wrote Predependence, that none of you have any responsibility for what we did. I never, none of you will ever have any responsibility. You may blame us, you may shame us, you be, may be angry at us, you may not want to have sex with us, but my decision to take that unhappiness and go and have sex with other people, I could have had a lot of choices, but that's what I chose to do. So once I make that decision, no, there's no more place for quite a while for me to say, well, you did this to me and you did that to me because we've lost that right. Part of what Out of the Doghouse, this book I wrote says is that you're no longer equal in the relationship. You're one down if you're the person who's been lying and cheating and screwing up your home life. And you should be, and my word for that is humility. I would be humble that this person is willing to sit here with me and even have a conversation. And if you don't understand the depth of the harm that you cause in relationship, um, well, I'm saying you probably don't, or you would know better than to ask this question because no matter what your spouse did, it will never justify what you did. And no spouses, you can be hate yourselves as much as you want, but you can't hate yourselves for making us do things that we have chosen to do. And with that, I will say, Tammy, it is always so much fun to do this with Hang you. Hang on one second, because a couple of people have said, can you say that again? And we're not going to sure. repeat all those things. However, what we are going to do is remind people that this video will be posted on sexandrelationshiphealing.com under resources and previously recorded webinars tomorrow. So go to sexandrelationshiphealing.com and resources, and it will be posted tomorrow. And you can watch it again, or you can share it with a loved one who really needed to hear this message. And I wrote a book 
called pro-dependence. And pro-dependence simply says about partners and spouses, how lucky we are to have you, how fortunate we are that someone, anyone would hang out and support us, even though we're distant and unavailable. And then the fact that you would stay with us after all you've learned, you are a hero. Anyone who says you need to look at yourself for staying with this person or why did you choose this person is going down a road that I think is, is extremely detrimental to your partners. Why do you stay with us? Because you're so sick. No, you stay with us because you love us and you hope things will work out. So I really don't like the idea of partners having to take their own uh, inventory, if you will, of themselves when you are not the problem. Now, one more thing. Some of you partners will say during this journey with the addict, I became someone I didn't want to become. I've gained weight, I'm angry all the time, I'm nagging, I'm complaining. Uh, at some point, you might want to say, gee, I didn't like the person I became in relationship to how you acted, and I will take that on, but it would be a long way down the road before those words would come out of my mouth as a partner. I would have to hear a lot of honesty, a lot of integrity, and see a lot of good behavior. And if you read it out of the doghouse, there's nothing in out of the doghouse that says, you really need to tell your spouse what they did wrong that justifies what you did. That's not what it's about. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.